0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Galatians chapter 2 is page number 972. Using one of the Bibles, there, the seat in front of you. Thank you for your prayers last week. I'm feeling mostly better. Mostly. It's like you uh, get done with the cold and flu season, you get to go right into allergies. It's like so fun, you know, it never stops. I could tell, never mind. I won't tell a story. I'll leave that alone. Galatians 2 again, we're going to be reading as we have done for the past several weeks, and as I think we will be doing for the last time today, verses 11 to 21, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 11. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on our time together. May your Spirit open our eyes to see our own hearts, to see the ways that We often act, Lord, as if you are not enough. May we be reminded of the sufficiency of Jesus this morning in all things we ask in his name. Amen. So there's a series on Amazon Prime called The Man in the High Castle. Now I don't watch this series, so if it's bad in any way or inappropriate, please do not come to me later and complain about me using it because A, I didn't know that, and B, the fact that you do know that is going to raise all kinds of fun questions for you that you will not enjoy just so you know. (laughs) Nevertheless, uh, while I don't watch the show, I do know the premise of it because it's based off of a novel of the same name that was written back in 1962, and the premise of both the book and the TV show is really a question, and the question is, (laughs) in darkness, what what would it be like if the Allies had lost to the Axis powers in World War II? What would life have been like had had America and the Brits and everybody else lost World War II? In the book, Germany and Japan uh, win the war, and so they end up uh, dividing America between them into two territories or two districts. I think it's Germany has everything from, like, the Rockies to the East Coast, and Japan has, like, the Rockies to the West Coast or something like that. And, of course, because it's uh, set in 1962, by the time the story opens, the characters in the story have been living under this... uh way of life now for almost 20 years, and so for them, it's become the new normal. In fact, there are some characters who have never known life apart from this, and so for them, occupation is all they've ever known. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of an interesting premise to me for a story, just to think through, you know, what would have happened? What would it have been like if the Nazis had defeated the Allies and eventually invaded America? Or just think about it today, even. Forget the past, just now. You know, what would happen if some foreign army came and landed on our beaches and eventually conquered our land and disbanded our government and completely changed our way of life, uh, wh- what kinds of fears would you have? What-, what-, what kinds of things would you worry about changing in the future? You know, if what we viewed as the very foundations of our society were all of a sudden ripped out from underneath us, what exactly Uh, you know, or how exactly, excuse me, would we respond? Now, I use this as my opening illustration because, quite frankly, I don't know how else to help us understand how the Jews viewed some of the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically for what the gospel had to do or what it said about the continuation of the Old Testament law. I mean, in the Jewish mind and experience, the the Torah, the law of Moses, and all that came with it was as central to their thinking and to their way of life as the ideas of freedom and democracy and the American dream are to us. So it's, it's kind of the same general area, so it helps us understand. And so, you know, when Peter... And Paul and the rest of the early believers are coming to the Jewish world and they're proclaiming Christ, that he has fulfilled the law and that the law is no longer binding on anyone. You know, this was a a scary, uh, difficult, uh, troublesome sort of thought for a lot of Jews, whether they were believers or unbelievers, It, it kind of didn't matter. Because what we're talking about here is a paradigm shift for them that is just really difficult for us to to comprehend. and This is important to keep in mind as we turn now to verses 17 to 21 here in Galatians chapter 2. As I told you last week, this entire section is pinpoint focused on the Jewish mind and experience, and as such, it takes a little bit of work on our part to try to understand it correctly and then to apply it appropriately. Paul here is speaking as a Jew to to Peter, who is also a Jew, about an issue that occurred, to put it bluntly, because of their Jewishness. Due to his former way of viewing and thinking about the Old Testament law, Peter separated himself from his Gentile brothers in Christ there in Antioch. And in doing so, he made a public statement to everyone who was watching that that old system, the system of Moses, the Old Testament law, was still binding and still in effect for all believers. And this, of course, is the issue that is going on here in the churches in Galatia. There are some false teachers who have shown up, and they're telling the believers there, hey, listen, I know what you've heard, but please understand something. Jesus isn't enough. He's not. Whatever you think you know, let me make sure you understand. He's not enough. You need Jesus, but you also need the Old Testament law. That's what the false teachers are saying. And this, of course, is why Paul is even telling us about his response to Peter after what happened there in Antioch, because his response to Peter is going to be basically the same as his response to these false teachers, at least in content, not necessarily in tone. Regardless, last week we looked here at verses 15 to 16 and we saw how Paul reminds Peter of their shared conversion experience, right? He says both of them, despite being Jews by birth, despite their belief that they were inherently privileged by God due to the fact of their genealogy, they both came to the same conclusion that someone cannot be justified simply through adherence to that Mosaic law. That in order for someone to be justified, to be declared righteous before God, that person has to place their faith in Christ. And this is no small realization or confession for them, particularly uh, from this Jewish perspective, because as I've already alluded to, in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the Jewish mind, the Old Testament law, man, that's everything. That's the source of their identity That's the the, the foundation of their daily life. It's the the undergirding of all of their religious belief and practice. And and one's faith in God is ultimately expressed through your commitment to and adherence to this law. Not just the individual components, remember, but to the thing as a whole, to to the system as a whole. Because the law as a whole represented for Israel what it was that God wanted from his people. Ergo, if you want to be one of God's people, you have to keep the law. And this isn't a complicated idea. However, it is an incorrect one. And the problem that both Paul and Peter came to understand by faith, mind you, is that no one could keep the law. No one had kept it. No one was ever going to be able to keep it. Only one person had ever truly, perfectly kept the law, and that was Christ. And what God wanted was not for you to place your faith in that old system, but to place your faith in his Son, who had perfectly and once and for all forever kept the law, fulfilled the law. And it was those people who put their faith in Christ that God would now declare righteous. This is, this is earth-shattering because it means that the time of the law is done. Well, you know, if you're a Jew and you hear that... You know, Well, what does that mean then for us? Like, what, what? How should we live? How do we think? What? You know, there's all these questions, all these fears, all these implications that come out of that understanding that Paul now needs to address, and that's what verses that's what verses 17 to 21 are doing here. They're they're addressing some of the immediate and pressing implications that would be just be naturally coming to the mind of any normal Jew who was trying to process and understand what it means to say and believe that Jesus is enough. To say that we don't need the law anymore, that Jesus is enough. What What is that going to look like then in their, their normal life? There were some, like Peter, who clearly believed that, right? But even Peter is struggling to live out the fullness of all the implications of that statement in his own life, and he makes a mistake there in Antioch. Others are having a much harder time for, for other reasons. So this is, this is our passage today. So what we're going to see today are three implications of the Gospels that are specific to the Jew, okay? Three implications. We, we need to understand it from their perspective first, because that's how Paul is writing it. He's writing it as a Jew to Jews about their Jewish understanding. So we need to understand it from their perspective first. And then we'll attempt to come back and apply it in ways that are similar and appropriate to us. Now, for full disclosure before I begin, I am taking these three implications, uh, not verbatim, but close, from Scott McKnight's commentary on Galatians just because they were so helpful and he did such a good job and I don't think I could improve on them. And I'm more concerned about you guys getting a good understanding of what's happening here than about me trying to be novel and come up with something creative for myself. So we're going to use his skeleton and hopefully put some of our own meat on it. So let's begin with the first implication that Paul addresses here in verse 17, and that is that the life of the Christian is not a lawless life. The life of the Christian is not a lawless life. Are you familiar with the word antinomian? It's not a difficult word, but it's a good one for us this morning. Uh, Namas in Greek means law, anti means against or in place of, and so what you have is the idea of someone or something being lawless, without law. And so we typically will use that word to refer to a country or a culture or society, something in turmoil, sometimes to an individual. But this was how the Jews viewed Christianity in Paul's day, as being antinomian. Now, if you're confused as to why this is the case, just think back to verse 15. And remember how Paul, in that verse, separates the entire world into two basic categories. On the one hand, you have Jews. On the other hand, you have Gentile sinners. Now, he doesn't call them sinners there because he knew something specific and personal about each and every person on the planet who's not a Jew, right? His his comment or his label isn't based on experience. It's actually just based on pure logic. One of the biggest things that, that that set Jews and Gentiles apart, we looked at this multiple times, is the fact that the Jews had God's law, right? So because they had God's law, they knew what God wanted and therefore they could do it. Well, uh, the Gentiles didn't. You know. For example, if, if you're a Gentile, you may not know that you're not supposed to eat pork or that you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. So when you wake up on a Saturday morning and slaughter the hog for your pick picking that night, right? you have no idea that you have just violated two of the biggest laws that, that the Jews will look at and say, oh no, you can never do that, never ever in a million years don't do it. Uh, they're breaking God's law just because they don't know. And so the train of thought is this, not having the law, means not knowing the law and not knowing the law means breaking the law you cannot obey what you do not know and you don't know what you don't have thus logically all the gentiles are sinners he can just that's just the assumption that's just how they worked that out in their mind they just were because the law in and of itself, was viewed by the Jews as being central to one being able to not live their life in sin. It is the basis of their understanding of morality. Well, here comes Paul saying that for Christians, they don't have to live under the law. You don't. Well, again, let's just think that through logically for a moment in the Jewish mind. If you don't have to live under the Old Testament law, well, that's going to lead you to sin, Again, because they can't picture an idea of morality or an understanding of morality or or being able to live a life that pleases God that isn't somehow tied to the law. So here come these Christians with their emphasis on living by the Spirit as their guide for their moral life, and they're walking away from everything that the Jews viewed as being the divine source of morality. And when you take all of that and you couple it with the free offer of salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike— all of whom are called sinners, all of whom are viewed as being sinners before God, it's no wonder then that one of the earliest criticisms, if you look back in church history, one of the earliest criticisms of Jews against Christians there in the first century was that they actually promoted sin. That Jesus was coming along promoting sin, encouraging people to sin. And this is what Paul is responding to here in verse 17. If I could boil verse 17 down to one sentence for us, one idea. I just would draw our attention to this question, is Christ a servant of sin? Is Christ a servant of sin? Now this Understand, this isn't an unrealistic fear or question from a Jewish perspective because for them... Sin is avoided by obeying the law. Therefore, to abandon the law is the same as abandoning God's will for your life. And therefore, it would sure seem to a Jew that this Jesus guy, he just might be encouraging sin. Hey, come to me and you can sin all you want. I'm lawless. That, that would be sort of how they would view it. Well, Peter, Paul, uh, hopefully every other Christian throughout time knows better that Christ is not a servant of sin. And Paul answers that here emphatically, right? Is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. No way. Are you crazy? What's wrong with you? That's a dumb question. You don't understand clearly. That's kind of the idea that he's getting at here. Yes, turning to Christ does require an acknowledgement of one's sinfulness. And that's what I think Paul is getting at at the beginning of verse 17 when he says, but if, this is his lead-in to the question, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ." We, too, were found to be sinners. You need, when you read that, you need to hear those words with Jewish ears. And you need to try to see them with Jewish eyes because this is Paul and Peter talking about the fact that they too are found to be sinners. Despite the fact that they're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, despite the fact that they had and tried to keep the Old Testament law, despite all of the privileges that they just assumed were theirs because of their genealogy, both Paul and Peter had come to understand that they were in reality sinners just like the Gentiles. And that is quite a confession for a Jew to make, particularly in the first century. That is quite a confession. They didn't turn to Christ to pursue sin, because that's the accusation of the antagonizers and these false teachers that, oh, you, I know why you want to go to Jesus. You want to go to Jesus so you can go sin and do whatever you want. And he's like, no, no, no. We didn't turn to Christ to pursue sin. We turned to Christ to find deliverance from our sin. And that's really what this first implication is all about. The life of the Christian is not some kind of lawless, antinomian life, as no doubt their adversaries were accusing them of. Just because they are now free from the law doesn't mean they are now free to pursue sin. In fact, just a spoiler alert for like a year and a half from now, uh, in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, right, Paul's going to deal with the same issue again. He's going to deal with the same issue. Okay, what is the antidote to sin? How do we fight against this thing? Well, I'll tell you what it isn't. The antidote to sin, the antidote to all the things he lists there in chapter 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all the stuff like that, it's not the law. The antidote to all of those things is the Spirit. The antidote to all of those sins is walking in the Spirit, having the Spirit of Christ live within us. Christ doesn't promote sin. Christ is actually the only viable way that any of us can ever experience victory over sin. That's what Paul is getting at here. Now, let's look at the second implication. This is a pretty quick one. The second implication is found here in verse 18. It follows right after this one and is tied to it, and it's this. In converting to Christ, the Christian, and especially the Jewish Christian, forfeits the opportunity of ever returning to the law as the primary orientation governing all of life. Now, that was a mouthful. Let me say it one more time. Listen carefully. In converting to Christ, the Christian, and especially the Jewish Christian, forfeits the opportunity of ever returning to the law as the primary orientation governing all of life. This is coming here from verse 18 where Paul says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now this this argument isn't difficult, but it is a little involved, so stick with me just for a moment. Let's start by asking the question, what exactly is being torn down here? That, what is he talking about? Well, I have to begin by noticing that He's speaking personally now, right? He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down. So so our question is, what has Paul torn down? What is it that we see Paul actively, seemingly trying to, to tear down? Well, as soon as I recognize that little detail, my list of possibilities gets really, really small. In fact, in the context, I would say there's only one thing that Paul is actively tearing down, and it's that old former view of his regarding the Old Testament law. He is actively trying to tear that down, In this letter. So notice then that Paul's argument here seems counterintuitive to what the normal Jew in his own day would think. They look at Paul and all the other Christians walking away from the law and they say, Oh, look, sinners, transgressors. And Paul goes, No, no, actually, um, it's the other way around. If I go back to that law, then I'm a sinner. If I walk back to what I have now walked away from, Now I'm a transgressor. In other words, he's saying, I can't go back. Based on what I I believe about Christ, I cannot return to that system, Paul says. And that's because he believes with all of his heart that God no longer wants anyone to come to that system as being the means of trying to know him and live in a relationship with him. That now what God wants for us is to come to him through his son. And so to try to come through any other means, particularly that old law, that would indeed be sin, a direct violation of an affront to all that God has done for us in Christ. If, if what Paul has said about Christ is true, there's no going back. You've got to understand that, Jews, Jewish Christians, Jewish believers who he's talking to here. You've got to understand we can't go back. If you want to understand what will be sin, going back to that will be sin, because per God's plan, that system is done. And so not only does turning to Christ and turning away from the law not promote sin, like you might be claiming or thinking or fearing, but actually if I go back to that old system, that's when I'm in sin, and I can't go that way. So our second implication that converting to Christ uh, forfeits the opportunity of ever returning to the law is true. If you're going this way, you can't go back. So there you go, two out of three. Now here's one more. It's a little bit longer one. In converting to Christ, the Jewish Christian now finds spiritual life through death to the law and life in Christ. The Jewish Christian now finds spiritual life through death to the law and life in Christ. And this comes from verses 19 to 21. It's the biggest implication of the three, but I think if we take it step by step, we'll be able to understand it pretty easily here. Three things. First, Paul recognizes that Christ's death and our death with him, which we'll talk about more in a moment, has brought the era of the law to an end for all believers. It's brought that era. Notice that word there. It's brought that era of the law to an end for all believers. And this is important because it clarifies for us a bit of why the law is done. It's not just that Paul has switched allegiances. It's not like he's, you know, a, a, a bandwagon fan, right, who cheers for whoever wins the World Series that year, right? He's just not switching jerseys so he can be on the winning side. No, 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 it's it's more than that. He says here in verse 19 that through the law, he has died to the law. In other words, the requirements that he had to the law have come to an end because he's dead. Paul is dead. And because he's dead, His requirements to that old law, no more. You say, I'm a little bit confused. All right, let's use an analogy that Paul uses elsewhere. I think it'll help us out a little bit here. In Romans chapter 7, Paul uses the analogy of marriage, right? And he he imagines a married person. He says, if you've got a married person, they are, for as long as their spouse is alive, bound to that spouse by the law of marriage. So then, if while they are bound in the law of marriage, if while they're doing that— They go out and marry someone else. What do we call that person? We call them an adulterer or an adulteress, right? You can't do that. You're bound by the law of marriage to your husband, to your wife. You can't go marry someone else. He goes, but, but, what if that spouse dies? Well, if that spouse dies, they're now set free from the law of marriage, right? They're no longer under that law. And now if they go marry someone else, that's fine. It's free. It's not sin at that point. All right, well, in a similar way, Paul was bound to the Old Testament law until death, right? I mean, that's just, you're born a Jew, you've got to follow the law, that's how it works. And so, in order to be free from the law, Paul has to die. Of course, what's the problem here? Paul's writing the letter. <laughs> so, he's not physically dead. However, you see the answer here in verse 20. He views himself as having been crucified with Christ. For the believer, our union with Christ is so real, Paul says, that his death is our death. It is that tangible that legit. And because he has died in our place having perfectly kept and fulfilled that law that none of us could ever keep or fulfill, we have now died with Christ to that same law. That's what I think he means here when he says that through the law he died to the law. I think he's referring to the fact that that Jesus fulfilled all that God had required and expected in that Old Testament law. And because he fulfilled that perfectly, he has freed us from it forever. And since, since that's done now, that whole era has ended. Jesus did what no other person could do, made it perfectly and completely fulfilled, followed to the T. Second, coming out of that thought, the life Paul says he now lives is also directly tied to the life of Christ, the resurrected life of Christ, and that's you know that's the outcome. Excuse me, uh, of our death to the law in Christ, right? It's not just that we we lose something; it's that we also gain something. He says, "I died to the law, so that for this purpose that I might live to God." He's not just getting; he's not just being. Uh, freed from one requirement, he's actually gaining something else. In verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our union with Christ is so real, again, Paul says, that not only are we freed from the law by his death, but now we can experience real life with God through the resurrected life of Jesus, because Christ lives in us. And, and I said this to the first group, and it's not on script, and I'll say it again to you. Do you really believe that? Like, I know, I know you would say yes, but I mean, I mean, just think about this. Do you really genuinely believe that Jesus Christ is alive in you, that his life is active in you? It, that's easy to give lip service to, folks. I'm, I'm telling you, it is so easy to say it. I I'm just not sure. I just want to make sure that it, this is not some kind of a fluffy spiritualistic idea that we all sort of ascribe to and don't really believe, because this is real. The spirit of Christ is in us, and this is where we find the power to live a godly life in the midst of this sinful and broken world world. Third, then, this, we find, is the true grace of God to us. Remember, the Jews thought that the law, and it's funny, again, when we hear that, we're like, what? But the Jews thought that the law was the grace of God to them. Oh, how gracious God is to have given us his law so that we can know what he wants from us and we can go out and do it. And they, and they viewed the law as being the grace of God to us. This was Paul's old view. And so for the normal Jew to look at what Paul is doing, they're like, man, you're abandoning the grace of God. To walk away from the laws, to walk away from God's grace. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. In turning to Christ, I'm not nullifying the grace of God. I'm actually finding it. I'm finding the grace of God here. And man, you're right though. Hey, If righteousness were through the law, if that's how I could live and be declared righteous before God, then if I leave that, clearly I'm in trouble. If that's where righteousness is found, then you're right. Christ died for absolutely no purpose at all. His death was worthless, and it accomplished nothing. But if all that Paul has said is true, then the true grace of God is not found in the law, but in the substitutionary death of his son for us. Paul hasn't lost the grace of God. He's found it. He's not nullified the grace of God. He's affirmed it. And all of this through Christ, thus our third and final implication there, that in converting to Christ, the Jewish Christian now finds spiritual life through death in Christ and death to the law and now through life in Christ as well. Now, what about us? Because... Again, all of these things are very, very specific to the Jewish mind and experience. I doubt that there's anyone in here now or at any point in the past who's ever looked at Christianity as a religion and thought, man, those Christians are only Christians so they can go out and sin all they want. At least I'm hoping you've not thought that. Uh, none of us are probably contemplating a return to the Old Testament law. You're, you're thinking about, you know, how you can change your diet and figure all this stuff out. Um, I doubt any of us would question, at least not out loud that we are both dead to the law and alive to God in Christ. And yet, in our own ways, I think we struggle with all three of these implications. For example, on the first one, when you or someone you know is struggling with sin and you're trying to help yourself or to help them, um, what is the first thing you turn to or the first thing you often suggest? Is it not often a law of some sort? well, you're sinning. You, you need to not do this. You know, Don't don't talk to that person. Don't go to that place. Don't visit that website. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't be this. Don't be that. Don't, 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 don't. We, we turn to that. And, and again, listen, all of those things might be good and right responses in, in terms of what you need to do in any given moment. I'm not in any way suggesting that they're bad, I'm just suggesting to you that they are not enough. If that's the totality of your response to sin, that is not enough, because on their own, those things will never be able to help you battle sin. Never. Because where is the victory against sin truly found? Remember, it's not found in a law of any sort, of any sort. True victory against sin is found through the resurrected life of Christ lived within us. It is found through keeping in step with the Spirit. That's what Paul says there in Galatians 5. If we want to see victory over sin, over the deeds of the flesh, we have to be walking in the Spirit. And so very practically, I would say to you that victory over sin isn't so much about what you're trying to get away from, as much as it is what you're trying to pursue. It's a subtle shift in thinking, but I think it makes a big difference in terms of our practical life. It's way more about who you are trying to pursue. Are you fighting for Christ or just against sin? And I'm not, please, again, understand, I'm not in any way disparaging fighting against sin. I'm just saying to you, if that's the totality of your response, you're missing the main point. We have to fight for Christ. Christ, repentance, remember that idea, biblically speaking, is not just about turning away from something. That's half of the idea. It's about turning to something. But most Christians just don't think that way. When they're struggling or they know someone is struggling, they think, well, I've got to help them stop. (laughs) Well, okay, yeah, I agree. But you also got to help them start too. It's got to be the full package or else you're missing out on the power and so if all you're trying to do is to turn away from something, in effect, you're trying to keep a law of sorts, a Suits, um, sorts, that was the right word. I don't know what word I'm looking for. Turn to Christ. Pursue him. Seek him. Make that the battle. Don't just get up in the morning and fight against sin. Get up in the morning and fight for joy and satisfaction in Jesus, and Jesus alone, and I think you'll experience a great deal more victory over sin than you ever have before. For the second one, as I said last week, and I won't spend a lot of time on it because of this, uh, don't we all str- uh, struggle with feeling like Jesus is truly enough sometimes? I mean, I do. I, I don't think I'm alone in that. You know, this is what I mentioned last week. For the person who gets up in the morning like, oh, God God doesn't like me today because last night I did this, or oh, God really loves me today because you know I didn't do this, where they feel like somehow their acceptance before God is contingent on their own performance. And I just would remind you again that the gospel tells us that God did not choose us because of our performance. He chose us because of his own purpose and grace. As J.I. Packer says it, God knew the worst about us in advance and chose us still. So our acceptance before God is not contingent on our performance or how good we do this day or how bad we do that day. No, 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 no. Do not go back in your heart or mind to that old way of thinking anymore. Jesus is enough. And when you're tempted to like, (laughs) on good or bad, to think, oh man, God doesn't love me today because I, no, fight. Jesus is enough. Pray it. Believe it. Ask God to help you believe And on the days when you think God loves me a lot, no, remember, Jesus is enough. It's, it never changes on either side. You have to stay true to that thought. And then finally, for the third one, remember that we too are united with Christ like Paul and are therefore dead to the law and alive to God and him. And this has been a near constant prayer of mine for the past two years now. Jesus, please live your life through me. You know, I, I don't know how to say this any other way, and I recognize that some of this may not make sense. Um, I'll, I'll just say it. I, I, don't, I don't really want to live anymore. Like, I don't want God to change me. I don't want him to fix me. Because I'm not changeable. And I'm not fixable. What I need is to die. Like I need Stacy to die, and I need Christ to live his life through me. That's my only hope. I don't need to be a better husband to my wife. I need Christ to live his life through me towards my wife. I don't need to be a better father to my children, a better pastor to you, a better friend, a better worker, a better neighbor, a better whatever. There's no fixing this. This needs to die. The flesh, the old man needs to die. And Jesus needs to live his life through me. And this is done by faith. That is exactly what Paul says here in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm done. I'm dead. There's no fixing Saul. Saul had to die. No fixing him. It's no longer I who live now, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I do that by faith by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me and folks this is deep and i'm not sure even i can help you fully understand it cuz quite frankly i'm not sure i fully understand i'm just i'm just seeing more and more that that we have to die we have to die whatever you're going through you don't just need like to be fixed you don't no 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 you need to die and you need to let jesus live his life through you to think how he thinks to love how he loved to do what he did to live how he lived and folks, this isn't just about more effort on your part. This isn't something to go out and try harder. I'm not suggesting that at all. It is about faith, allowing the spirit of Christ within us to control us and our actions and choices each and every day. And that is not natural for me. And it's probably not natural for you either because we tend to be very selfish and want to be in control because we are rebels at heart. But this, along with the other two, are all the right and natural implications of this gospel that we say we believe. And so, let's pursue it. Let's pursue it purposefully, intentionally, in faith, so that Christ becomes our all in all in everything. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we, we come because we recognize this morning that Jesus is enough, that he's more than enough. He's everything to us. We don't, we don't need to to be fixed. We don't need to just simply be changed. This this old man, this flesh that we live in, it's corrupt and it's broken. We need Jesus for you to live your life through us, for the Spirit of Christ within us to take control, to fill us, and to go out and to live like you lived, to love like you loved in all of these various areas in which you've placed us. We're not trying to promote sin. We're, We're actually we're trying to live a life that's pleasing to you, and we fail, and we acknowledge it, and we we ask your forgiveness for it, and we th- we thank you for the fact that you knew the worst about us, you knew every time we would fail in advance, and chose us still, and that gives us confidence—not to to wallow in our sin or to again fall into the trap of thinking that we are accepted based on our performance, but to remember that we are complete in Christ, and now we can go out and live completely for Him. And so I pray that that would be our heart's desire, that as we get up tomorrow. Our prayer will simply be, Jesus, live your life through us. Please fill us with your spirit, Lord. Send us out as your church, we ask in your name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.